Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Bring it on! Conversations about collaboration, episode 31. Rohit Bhavgara joins me to talk about the spectrum of work, diversity and inclusion, and the role of political discussions in the workplace. Rohit, where does this pod find you? <laughs> I am uh, at my home in Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C. You're no stranger to remote work. You've been doing it for a long time, right? Well before the pandemic. Yeah, I've been, well, for me, remote work was sometimes at homework and most of the time in hotel work, <laughs> which is basically work while you're traveling, but that's remote too. Mm -hmm. And that's fed a bunch of different books. In fact, an entire series before we get into the specifics of some of the newer ones. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the premise behind the non-obvious guides. It is very much not a dummies guide, correct? Yeah, it was sort of created as the anti-dummies guide in the sense that uh, I picked up a, a number of dummies guides, not yours, obviously, but uh, other ones that I found limitedly useful. Um, and the reason was because they were either too basic, uh, too all-encompassing, and, and basically cutting and pasting instructions to do stuff you could easily find online. And most importantly, they lacked a point of view in terms of what, what does the expert who's writing this book actually think I should do? It was uh, very, well, you could do this or you could do that. It was almost like listening to a lawyer kind of talk, but not really say anything. And I thought, well, if it's a guidebook, it should actually be guiding you. And so the person writing it should be an expert who says, look, I've tried these three things and those two are crap and this one's good. And where is that guidebook? And so that was what inspired creating the non-obvious guide series. It was real experts talking about real expertise and and none of the fluff. And so they're much shorter than the typical dummies guide. They don't have a lot of that cut and paste information. In fact, we have a very specific policy that says if something's easy to Google, we don't put it in. And the entire tone of them is sort of encompassed in the tagline, which is like having coffee with an expert. And that's sort of what they're meant to be. Hmm. Well, I'm having coffee with an expert now. Talk to me about virtual meetings, collaboration, uh, how the future of work corresponds with teams because we've gotten, I think, a better sense of how this works. But then, as you know, companies are starting to plan on getting back. And I don't think it's turning on a switch. Plus, as you know, there are many employees who said either, A, I can't go back to work because I have physically moved hundreds of thousands of miles away, or I don't want to go back to work full time. And if you make me be in an office Monday through Friday, nine to five, I'll quit. Yeah, it's uh, it's we're about to hit this moment where people are going to find where on the spectrum they are. And I intentionally say spectrum because it used to be this person works from home and this person works from the office. And now I think it's going to be much more of this person comes in Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays and the other two days they work from home. And this idea that's increasingly being called the hybrid work uh, environment, like I think that's going to be a reality for more and more people. And it's not, by the way, it's not because people have all of a sudden realized that they like to work like this. I think that much more it's been organizations that were long resistant to letting people work from remote locations because they felt like, oh, people will goof off. They won't really do work. They'll be sitting there watching Netflix or whatever the fear was. And then once everybody had to do it and a lot of companies figured out, yeah, some people were unable to do it, unable to focus, but most people figured out how to be productive from home. And now that they're 
organizations have seen that that barrier of oh i don't want you working from home because you're just going to be goofing off in your pajamas like that resistance is not there anymore because the companies know that people can be productive from home so they're more willing to let people do it but the person though when you argue is just one dimension another dimension is the type of work right so if i'm serving food or working in security to use two obvious examples it's really tough to do that remotely correct there was always working remotely has an inherent uh, bias towards the sort of job that can be done remotely right i mean there's no working remotely for a pilot um you know you got to go into the plane and you got to fly the plane right so when we talk about working remotely we're obviously talking about the sort of job that can be done remotely we're not talking about something where you have to be there by nature of the job mm-hmm. In your experience, have organizations adopted new tools reasonably well? Or where are you on that? Because I know where I stand and I'm biased in one direction. But what do you think? No, I probably agree with you. Organizations suck at it. Uh, and and the reason is the same reason why uh, anyone who's worked in a big company is frustrated with their IT department. Um, it's because platforms are generally introduced on the top level. Uh, they're tried to be rolled out across the organization. Some people don't like them. They find their own solution that works better, but that solution is not allowed to be used according to the rules of the organization. I mean, this is a common thread. Like anybody who's been in any large company having had to use the tools that the company provides for you versus finding your own tools knows this situation. They understand it. And I think that working remotely and the nature of virtual work has made that even more difficult uh, in the sense that, I mean, you you can understand both sides. I mean, I understand why a large company would want a single platform because it makes it easier for everyone. I understand why certain teams might say, you know, that platform doesn't do what I need it to do. And this platform over here is better, faster, cheaper, easier, whatever, you know, maybe all four. And yet it's not approved. Uh, because not everybody can use it, right? So this tension has existed for the last 25 years. Uh, it just used to be about whether we'd lo- use Outlook or Gmail for our <laughs> for our email. And now it's what virtual uh, meeting platform are we going to use to have these video chats and video conferences? I think that's part of it. There's something that people don't want to use though, right? Because they're used to it, even if a tool is objectively better you still have that change management aspect, right? And to your point, uh, it's amazing to me that an organization would use tool, two tools that you that do essentially the same thing. I know that when I worked at ASU, they had both Outlook and Gmail and you could use either one, but Outlook was technically official, right? So it was sort of optional, but not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, look, there are some situations like, if I'm using Zoom, you have to use Zoom too because we're both communicating on Zoom. Whereas if I use Outlook and you use Gmail, no one cares, right? Um, So, I mean, there's some platforms where it can be a personal choice and it doesn't actually impact it. At the end of the day, you still get my email and I still get your email, who cares? Uh, Whereas, I mean, maybe the IT team cares because they have to keep it up to date or manage the security or whatever, but like we don't care. Whereas when it comes to Zoom, like we kind of both need to be using Zoom. Yeah, I think the 50 cent word is interoperable. And I have mixed feelings about that because even though there are ways technically to stitch together some of these tools and argue some cases it makes sense, other in other instances, even if I could tie together Teams and Slack 
why would I? Yeah. I mean, I think that it is, there's definitely a, a resistance to learning new tools. I mean, everybody has that, hmm. uh, but it's also sort of necessity, right? I mean, we had zoom existed for, I don't know how many years before the pandemic, but like a necessary. Right. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Um, yeah, I know, I know you would know. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's been around, it's not like a new platform someone just came up with because they're like, holy shit, there's a pandemic. Right. I mean, no, it's, it's been there for a while, but it became urgent. And sometimes the adoption of these tools is, is based on something urgent happening. Mm-hmm. I have a theory about why zoom blew up when there was already something that did some of the same things in Skype, but I'd love to hear your theory if you have one. Uh, I don't know that I, that I really have a theory. I think that, um, I think that it was easy to use for minimal money and maybe even free that might've helped. Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, you probably have more of a, a sense. I don't know why it took off versus something else. Yeah. A couple of things. I think that the fact that you could send someone a link, basically clicking it, boom, the ease of use was there. There's also probably some of the shiny new thing. Zoom is kind of a cool name. Um, Skype, I know it had a bunch of different iterations and then was Skype for business and regular Skype. And I think PayPal bought it at some point, but then a bunch of different owners and seemed like a really missed opportunity, all things considered. Um, but you know, technology. The no through. login thing is huge. You're right. Um, the fact that I could send somebody a link and they wouldn't have to log in or have an account. I mean, that was always a huge frustration with Skype. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the training aspect, because I'm with you. A lot of times employees don't learn new tools, but isn't it a bit presumptuous for uh, an employer to ask employees to learn this tool on their own time when there's a pandemic, schools are canceled, kids are at home, everything's in chaos. What's the role of training in all this? Well, I think if you're an organization that's going to roll something out, you have to be able to provide the training for people uh, to learn how to use it. Uh, now, whether you intentionally do that by saying, okay, everyone has to attend this course or this course in order to be quote unquote certified in the tool, or you say, hey, if you need training on the tool, here's the training to become sort of a ninja on it. But uh, a lot of the tools, I mean, you know this as well as I do, like a lot of the digital tools that are created to access their basic 80% of the functionality, you shouldn't need a deep training course. I mean, that's a product design failure. If I need to sit through an hour-long training course on how to click a link and get into a Zoom call. Uh, so they should be easy enough to use. And then for the people who need to really kind of master them, there should be training available. I mean, that's just, that seems pretty basic. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk a bit about one of your other books coming out, Diversity. How does that fit into this new normal, especially if you think about Black Lives Matter and corporations being a little bit more sensitive. I know you pay attention to everything, so I'm not going to throw something weird at you, but I'm sure you heard about what happened with Basecamp. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really thorny area. And I feel like with organizations in a way, they're almost damned if they do and damned if they don't, right? You're never going to make anyone happy in general, much less than these polarized times. Um, talk to me about in the context of your book, your forthcoming book on diversity. Well, I think um, I'm not sure that that's entirely uh, true that you can never make anyone happy. I think that a lot of the mistakes that organizations make are are quite predictable um, to anyone who sort of pays attention to the way people feel and how deeply they feel about certain things. 
the book that I'm co-authoring with uh, um, with my uh, friend and co-author Jennifer Brown is called Beyond Diversity, and it was really inspired by a summit that we held a couple months ago. Um, the non-obvious company held it a couple months ago, where we brought together more than 200 speakers on every level of diversity. And when I say every level, we brought together conversations that were typically happening in isolation into one big event. So we had conversations about women in technology. We had uh, conversations about diversity in politics. We had conversations about diversity in casting for Hollywood. We talked about diversity in fitness and uh, the Olympics. Uh, we had another session about content for kids, like kids' books and, and having more diversity in those. Like all of these topics that are typically talked about in isolation were all brought together in this one big event. And the tagline that we sort of settled on, because that's how people just kept reacting to the idea of it, was that it was the world's most ambitious conversation about diversity. Hmm. And that's what inspired this book that's going to be coming out in, in October of uh, 2021, all about well, how do we talk about this in across all of these different themes? So there's 12 themes that will be featured in the book. Uh, one of them is diversity in the workplace. One Another one is diversity in storytelling. There's diversity in technology, diversity in politics. I mean, these are all topics. And then different sessions sort of spoke to those topics. And then we took a lot of the insights from the speakers and combined it with sort of an overview and research around where the world is now. And every chapter aims to paint a picture of how the world is, how it could be, and what it would take for us to get there. Um, and then there's some very actionable things that all of us can do to help make that happen. Put that in the context of the future work and diversity. I don't think it's going anywhere, and there's certainly more attention being paid to it. I do get the sense, though, that some people are afraid to do anything because it is such a polarized world right now. What are some non-obvious things that a leader could do to embrace diversity and maybe minimize, I don't want to say the downside, but not have effectively a base camp situation, which people are quitting. Yeah. I think that part of it is a, is a power dynamic. Um, and so a lot of the focus on diversity and work tends to be, Oh, we need to hire more diverse people. And what a lot of organizations forget is you probably have some diversity in your team already, but they're all the way at the bottom. <laughs> you know, they're not the VP of something. They're not in the boardroom. They're not being really asked for their perspective. Uh, in a way that makes them anything more than, than a token diversity person, uh, diverse hire. And that's what I think could be the biggest impact to change immediately, because it doesn't require you to hire someone new. It doesn't require you to entirely th rethink your recruiting process. What it re requires you to do is appreciate the perspective of someone who is underappreciated right now, who is already in your organization. And that's one of the starting places that I think a lot of companies forget about um, because it's always about like the new thing and the new person and oh we need to fix this by bringing in new people and sometimes that fight to fix it has to start from inside as opposed to outside hmm. and what's your opinion on the use of these tools for these types of discussions they can become pretty toxic pretty quickly right someone posting a story or a video in a slack channel or a microsoft teams channel before you know it, all of a sudden, you've got chaos. Yeah, I think that to some degree, that is, uh, that is going to be unavoidable. I mean, on both sides, right? There are going to be people who post things that they don't intend to be offensive, but that are offensive, um, that someone gets offended by. Um, there are people who find something funny that is offensive and not really that funny. And on the flip side, there are people who uh, 
see something that that probably isn't really all that offensive and and take it to be much more offensive than it is and turn it into a much bigger deal uh, than it probably would have been somewhere else. And that speaks to how sensitive um, people are on, on both sides. Uh, either they're sensitive to the point of being really offensive or they're sensitive to the fact of, Hey, I'm not even trying to hurt anybody. Like I'm just posting something that's, that's funny. And if you don't think it's funny, then that we just don't have the sense of same sense of humor, right? Like what's the big deal. And, um, and I think that our inability to have a conversation about that has led to situations like what happened at base camp, which is someone at the top in base camps case, two white guys said, well, we're just not going to talk about this stuff at all. We're just going to like shut our ears and like turn off all these conversations and not allow them to happen at all. And if you disagree with that, then you can leave. Hmm. And that's what people did uh, because it didn't actually solve the problem. It just sort of, it was sort of like cleaning your room by tossing everything in the closet. Uh, and that didn't really solve the problem. Yeah, It's fascinating watching that whole thing play out uh, because you're right. They're too relatively well-to-do white guys. Um, they've got a history, as you know, of creating what I've heard called opinionated software. But I, I, I also remember something that Tony Shea did at Zappos when they embraced holacracy back in, I think it was 2014. They said, this is the way we're going. If you don't like it, take a buyout. And something like 30% of the people did. Couldn't you argue that if that's the way the company wants to go, whether that's the right way or the wrong way, using that type of litmus test can actually help you determine which employees are, are in and which ones aren't. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. But uh, it's one thing to do that around a strategic direction of a business as mm-hmm. in like, you know, we're moving from a subscription model to like a services model. Right. I mean, that's one thing versus doing it on a sort of way that we treat political thought or the, our employees' ability to talk about something that we deem political, right? And I think that in Basecamp's case, I mean, not to go too deep into that, but I think that that the problem also was that there was, um, it was easily described as hypocritical, um, mm. the policy. They're like, well, we shouldn't talk about politics or anything like that. However, there are certain political issues that affect our business. And so we can talk about those. Um, and you're like, okay, well, d- like, where's the, you know what I mean? Like either you don't talk about this stuff or, or you do. And and either it applies to everybody or it doesn't. And and I think that they had some hypocrisy in that, which also caused people to be angry. Mm. Yeah, I think it's easier when you say something that's in a way completely inappropriate and you back down just as a case in point. And I think it's compounded by the fact that I did this uh, in a text format versus telling or saying something slightly inappropriate to someone. Oh, did you hear what Phil said? Right. Will they actually see? Right. So at ASU, uh, I don't know, maybe three years in, uh, well, I'll take a step back. Uh, I remember in the late 90s, old enough to have been working then, that uh, uh, typically you'd say, I'm going to send out an email, you know, here's what I'm going to do, silence equals consent, and it really wasn't a big deal. Well, in the Me Too era, whoa, that takes on a totally different meaning. And I used that line with some of my students about a decision I was making and said, look, unless you have a problem with it, silence equals consent. And a female student came right back privately and said, whoa totally inappropriate. And I realized that the world had shifted. So I apologized. I took it down. We were good. Um, But if it was something that was a little bit more questionable, maybe I would have been a bit more defensive and said, oh, you're being too sensitive. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to draw the line for someone else, right? That's well put. 
I'll get you out here on this, uh, Rohit. Uh, what book are you currently reading? I am currently, well, I just finished it yesterday, but I think it counts. Okay. <laughs> um, a book called The Liar's Dictionary, uh, which is a fictional book. Uh, just a fantastic story. It's about um, a woman who is charged with finding mount weasels, which are uh, fake words that have been inserted into a dictionary. Um, and she has to go and find them based on somebody who inserted them like years and years and years ago for various reasons. So that's what the story is. Oh, interesting. Good stuff, Robert. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.